We have waited a year to jump back into this series since we started March uh, a year ago and got sidetracked by this little bug that came out. That was a little funny, okay? This little bug. Uh, so I'm excited to dive into. Uh, kind of set this vision and DNA and mission uh, for where uh, we are headed in the church uh, we want to build. Jurassic Park was one of my favorite movies as a kid growing up um, because it was terrifying. Uh, seeing a Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, in the, I remember seeing it in the drive-in um, in this giant dinosaur you know, sends chills up your spine when you're like eight years old or whatever. It was terrifying, but really it was also the first time, I think maybe the first movie that really ever portrayed what dinosaurs might actually look like. And, and it was terrifying and amazing. And we, you could go from kind of imagining what you thought a dinosaur would look like from a book uh, and, and kind of see it in real life. And it was kind of awe-inducing to see such a creature. But if you go back and you remember and you think about the movies, you remember that the reason or the way that they were able to create these dinosaurs was because they found these mosquitoes, these giant dino, you know, dinosaur mosquitoes, uh, trapped in amber, and they were able to extract blood from inside the mosquitoes that had dinosaur DNA in it. And so they were able to clone new dinosaurs based off the DNA that they found in these mosquitoes. Their DNA was a blueprint that produced the dinosaurs that they created. And not to freak you out or anything, but Elon Musk's partner recently came out and said that he could actually create the real Jurassic Park. So, This, on some level, may be science fiction, but, on, but mostly is not. DNA is the genetic code that determines what will become of a person or an animal. If your DNA says you're going to have blue eyes, then you're going to have blue eyes. If your DNA says you're going to uh, be taller, then you're going to be taller. If it says that your hair is going to part one way, then it will part that way. If it says you're going to have a big nose, well, sorry, you're going to have a big nose. If it says that you're going to be male, you're going to be male. If it says you're going to be female, you're going to be female. Our DNA can even do us harm by predisposing us to cancer or other diseases. It might be messed up or incomplete, and you're born with an extra finger or missing a finger. See, DNA determines what grows and what is produced, for good or bad. But that is not only true with our bodies. It is not only true physically for us. It is also true in any organization and in any church. The DNA that we build into Fellowship Baptist Church today will produce exactly what is intended tomorrow. What I mean is that what we build doesn't happen by accident. What becomes of our church doesn't just happen because we hope that it happened. Hoping that our church will grow, that it'll thrive, it'll flourish, that it'll produce deep, rich followers of Jesus is not going to actually produce that. Hope is not a strategy. The DNA of our church will produce something. Whether that something is good or bad is dependent upon the DNA or the culture of our church today. In the late 70s, early 80s, there was a church in Louisville, Kentucky 
that was uh, a mega church. It was thriving. It was growing. It was the kind of church that other churches looked at and copied because they're like, we want what they have and we want to become like them. And so we're going to do what they do. It was a church that had everything going for it, growing, thriving, all that stuff. But then as the 90s came, it slowly started to decline, started to die until in the late 90s, there were about 25 people left from a 5,000-person church. So they were struggling and needed some extra revenue coming in. And they, there was a church plant that was planting a church in the area. And so they agreed to let that church plant meet in their building on Sunday nights when they weren't using it. And they'd bring them in a little extra revenue. So that church plant had been going for a couple of years. And they had grown to a little over 100 people and going strong. And they were kind of getting to a place where they wanted their own building. But then they had this thought that this church, this mega church that had dwindled to 25 people, since they were struggling, maybe they could kind of come together, merge their churches, create one new church, and, and, and be able to, you know, revive what was broken there and begin to reach that neighborhood that they were no longer reaching. And so they brought that to the leadership of the 25-person church, and uh, they brought it before the business meeting. And those all 25 members showed up at the business meeting, and one question was asked at the business meeting in regards to whether or not we should combine our efforts, merge our churches, and continue to serve the city. And that one question was, well, if we do this, what kind of music will we have? <laughs> and the answer was obvious because the 25-person church couldn't afford, they didn't have a music person, anybody really leading. And so the, the church plan had a band and said, well, our, our, we assume our band would lead. Okay. And so they voted on whether or not to merge the churches. And they voted 25 to nothing to not do it. Six months later, the church closed its doors and died. That church died because it had bad DNA. The DNA of that church saw preference and style and methodology of how we do what we do as more important than the mission God gave to them. So that church was uniquely positioned to accomplish exactly what the DNA and the culture of the church was intending to produce. The DNA of our church is important. It will determine our long-term health or decay, growth and flourishing or stagnation. So over the next seven weeks, I am going to preach through our new mission statement and our core values. These are things that are meant to be like bumpers in a bowling alley. I know none of y'all use because you're too good at bowling. But if you go to a bowling alley and you put bumpers up, they are meant to keep you from going off the rails. Keep you from getting off mission, off purpose. Keep you from losing focus. They are meant to keep us from doing the wrong things. They are tools meant to point us toward the target, toward the prize, and keep heading in that direction, not get sidetracked. This mission statement, these core values are meant to help us infuse this DNA, this culture into our system and embody it so that it launches our church in the right direction. The DNA that we have today will determine what our church becomes tomorrow. The DNA determines who we are, what we do, and where we're going. Next year, I'm excited because our church is going to celebrate its 50th birthday. 
And we're going to do it up, and we're going to have a party, and we're going to have a whole shindig, and I'm excited about that. And we are thankful for those who came before us. Some of those people are still in this room. And we're thankful for them. We're thankful for the faithfulness of people who were faithfully proclaiming and sharing the gospel and building a church. Today, we stand on their shoulders. But we must concern ourselves more with the next 50 years. The question is, what will fellowship be in five years? What will she be in 10 and 25 and 50 years? Will she have baptized hundreds, planted other churches, sent missionaries around the world? Will she have raised up the next generation of leaders? That the five-year-olds over there now, will we have raised them up to be pastors and missionaries and church leaders? Or will we have grown into a really big social club that we talk about Jesus every now and again? Will we have dwindled down to 25 people holding on to the songs Nathan's singing now that are old at that point? Will she have abandoned our core beliefs? Will we have abandoned the sufficiency of Scripture? Will we have abandoned the resurrection of Jesus? Will we have bowed to the culture? Will we have bowed and softened our views on what is sin, on what is righteousness? on that fact that Jesus alone can save? Will we capitulate to the culture in order to reach more people and therefore lose our message? The DNA and the culture we infuse now will determine what happens tomorrow. Fellowship's faithfulness to the kingdom of God and for generations and generations and generations to come is dependent upon us being faithful today like those who before us were faithful. And it matters what DNA we build into our culture. Ultimately, I believe that this vision for our church is really the culmination of what I think the whole Bible is calling us to do. But we are paring it down into some simple truths. But Colossians 1, 24 through 29 is one of those passages that was always in the forefront of our minds in developing this. And so I want to start off by reading that. If you have your Bibles, Colossians 1, verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. There are two important phrases in this that I want to point out. <coughs> I don't have COVID, it's just drainage, it's just allergies, I promise. Every time you cough in public, it's Two phrases, one it says, to make the word of God fully known, which will result in that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, when you boil down our mission to its simplest, it is that we want to help everyone within our reach come to know Christ and to grow in maturity in him. Like, we want to be a light in the darkness, yes. We want to see people come to that light, yes. But we don't stop there. We don't just baptize people and say, good luck, I hope you figure it out. Our mission is to develop and grow people into Christian maturity. We want to take people from the kiddie pool 
to the deep end, from drinking milk to solid food. We do not want fast food Christianity that's easy. We want to take the teachings of Jesus seriously. Because maturity in Christ literally changes everything about your life. Human flourishing, your thriving and flourishing happens when people's whole lives are surrendered to Jesus as king. So here is how we are encapsulating this message in our mission statement. We are saying that our job is making Jesus essential in the hearts, lives, and homes of everyone within our reach through the gospel proclaimed, understood, and practiced. This morning, I'm going to talk about the first half. Next week, we'll talk about the second, making Jesus essential in the hearts, lives, and homes of everyone within our reach. Before I jump into that, let's pray. Father, would you, would you help us and our church rally around a vision to catch this DNA, to let it be contagious, to let it infect us, and let the, the truths of your word that are manifested in these statements take deep root in our heart and change us so that it is felt for generations and generations. So that our, so that uh, 50 and 100 years from now, they will look back and say, we stand on the shoulders of those from 2021 uh, when they were faithful with the truth that was given to them. God, help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, 2020 was a little difficult, right? It showed us a lot. It was hard on all of us, but it revealed it revealed some things that I don't think any of us were really expecting it to reveal. We live in a time of, of great prosperity and plenty. And I think it taught us that many of our conveniences are not actually essential. Many of the things we thought were essential to life, we learned, really weren't. That we could do without. Uh, for example, we learned that we didn't have to be on the go as much, but that we could live at home for a long time. We might go a little crazy, but we could do it. We learned that you don't have to go to the movie theater to see a movie, but you could pay way too much money to see a movie at home. We learned that Chick-fil-A can thrive without opening its dining room because it can put like a thousand cars through an hour. We learned that Chick-fil-A ought to run the world. We learned that you didn't have to go inside a grocery store, that you could just pull up and they'd put your groceries in. Or they don't even bring them to your house for like $1.25 a month. We learned that office buildings are not essential, that you can just work from home. <laughs> and we learned that you can work from home without wearing pants. And we learned that if you need to, you can go to church and stay in your pajamas in your living room. That was just this year of all the things we learned weren't essential. If you asked your grandparents or maybe your great-grandparents, you would learn. If you asked me, you'd learn that the Internet's not essential. You could ask them and you'd learn that electricity is not essential. You used to light a candle. You asked them, you could learn that AC somehow, bless God, is not essential. You could learn that indoor plumbing was not essential. No matter how much we enjoy and really, really, really appreciate some of these things, they're not essential. They weren't then and they're not now. But there are many things in life that are essential. Oxygen is essential. Blood in our veins is essential. 
A power source for a car is essential for it to travel. Yeast in bread is essential. For something to be essential means that it is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. So here is the question. Is Jesus essential? Is Jesus absolutely necessary? Now immediately we're all going to go, of course, duh. Of course, friend, of course, Jesus is essential. Of course, he's absolutely necessary. But do we mean it? <coughs> do we mean it? <coughs> do our lives testify that we actually mean it? You see, I think we all agree, or at least we better agree, that Jesus is essential for the spiritual things, that he's essential for salvation, that you can only be saved in him, that he's essential to grow in our spiritual lives, that he's essential on Sundays and all of that. We, we got that, but is he essential on Monday morning when you're headed to the office? Is he essential on Wednesday afternoon when you come home to spend time with your kids? Is he essential on Thursday when you take your kids to ball practice? Is he essential in your marriage? Is he essential in your career? Is he essential in your parenting, in your friendships, in your pocketbook? in your hobbies? Is Jesus absolutely necessary for those things? Is he essential for those things? You see, I think most of us live our lives disjointed, disconnected, inconsistent. Or as some might say, we live our lives like hypocrites. And I don't mean hypocrite in the classic sense of the word. Like, I don't mean, oh, you say you're a Christian, but cuss like a sailor. That's not what I mean. I actually mean that we do not live or see or function as if all of our lives were under the domain and rule and care of Jesus. Instead, we live segregated lives. Like we have our spiritual things over here and they're super important to us and we love Jesus and, and we're like, yes, Jesus, ha, rah, rah, rah. We give him full reign of a lot of things. But then we view the rest of our life as the secular thing. We got our spiritual things over here and we, we use Jesus for those things. But then we have our secular life, our normal everyday life. And we think that Jesus, as long as I'm not sinning in those things, that we think that he doesn't really care about those things because they're secular. And he doesn't really have any interest in those areas. He doesn't really care about my job. He just cares that, you know, I, I don't sin while I'm at my job. That's what we think. You see, we say Jesus is Lord. We say Jesus is king, but we end up treating him like he's the mayor of Mainville. I don't even know who mayor of Mainville is. Giving Jesus reign over some of the areas in our lives, but limiting his reach to only those things that we think he should have some say over. And this is the problem. As we are supposed to be bringing our whole lives in submission to Jesus as Lord, we instead give him some things, resulting in the deformity of our discipleship. Instead of being full-grown, mature, mature disciples, our growth is stunted and deformed. Like a man who only goes and works out his upper body, bench pressing and curling and whatever, and, and he gets ripped and shredded up top, and he comes walking in, and he's you know, like this, and he's got these little bitty chicken legs. It looks weird, right? 
Like that's what happens to us when we give Jesus some of our lives but not all of it, when we have spiritual things and secular things. Or imagine a, a chest of drawers. Now, i got to be honest, until about uh, 28 years old, I thought a che- the, the chest of drawers was called a chest of drawers. And I just said it really fast. I didn't really know what you were saying. I just, oh, yeah, chest of drawers. And then I, someone typed it out. I'm like, oh, it's a chest of drawers. That makes so much sense. And so think about with me a chest of drawers you got in your, in your bedroom. And you got, all, you got your sock drawer and your, and your underwear drawer and your T-shirt drawer and your pant drawer and your shirt drawer and your junk drawer. You got all these drawers, right? Well, what we, what we do is we look at that and we say, hey, okay, Jesus, I'm going to give you all, you get all these drawers. But you don't care about my sock drawer. So don't worry about that one, Jesus. I got, I'll, I'll handle that one. And, and, we, and we segregate it and we don't give them all of it. We don't give them every drawer. But let me tell you, Jesus doesn't want every drawer. Jesus is saying the whole daggum chest is his. The things that fall underneath, the things that fall behind the drawers, the things that you pile up on top, the whole thing, your whole life belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper, this old theologian, said it this way, there is not a square inch, square inch, not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. That means there is not one area, not one area, not one thing or category in your life that should not belong (coughs) and come up under the reign and control and care of Jesus. I just got a cough. This is why we are saying our goal is to make Jesus essential in the hearts, lives, and homes. These three categories encapsulate our whole lives. Let's talk about that. Making Jesus essential in our hearts. This incredibly personal and internal thing. Like we have to do this. We have to make Jesus essential in our hearts or else our hearts will make something else essential. We often call this idolatry. That our hearts cling to other things. John Calvin called our hearts idol factories, always looking for a savior, always looking to be filled by something else. Because if our hearts aren't satisfied and haven't made Jesus essential, we'll make something else essential. It is the reason we are prone to addiction. It is the reason we are glued to our phones for hours and hours and we ignore our friends, we ignore our spouses and our kids because whatever's happening on our phone is more interesting than what's out in the world. It is the reason, (coughs) good grief, it is the reason we think, oh, maybe a different relationship will make me happy, a different man or woman. It is the reason we think that just a little more money, just a little more rest, just a little bit more uh, <clears throat> money or, or rest or I'll be so less stressed and it'll make me happy. So we move from thing to thing looking for something to make us happy, looking for something to complete us, something to be essential. And everything out there promises you it'll satisfy you. Everything promises it'll be, <clears throat> it's just like tickling. Drink some more of this. I think all that murmur was like, yeah, we know what you're saying, right? Yeah, we got you. 
Everything out in the world promises you that it'll satisfy you, that it'll bring you true joy and contentment in life. But they all lie. Like they all lie. They all promise to satisfy you and they all never deliver. They say they'll be essential and they never are. Jesus alone can satisfy the deepest desires and longings of your heart. Jesus alone is essential. And so we must work to weed out every rival God from our hearts until Jesus alone is essential for us. Because only then will people actually find the rest that they're longing for. Only then will people actually find the peace and the joy and the contentment that they're actually longing for. Not only do we want this for ourselves, but we want it for everyone else. And so we must make Jesus essential in our hearts, but also in our homes. When I was a youth pastor, a friend of mine brought his brother to our church, and uh, we connected, and uh, uh, he hadn't been in church in a long time, and he started coming back, and started coming regularly, and he was turning his life around, and he, he got serious about the gospel, serious about following Jesus, and um, his wife wasn't a believer, and she got saved, and I baptized her, and that was awesome. They, they started serving in the church, and they were on fire for Jesus, and everything was going well until about a year or so later when their marriage started struggling. <clears throat> and their marriage started struggling, not because there was any big issue or scandal, but they just kind of grew discontent. <coughs> oh my gosh. Lord Jesus, give me grace. Uh, and they just kind of grew unhappy with each other. And so my buddy, he began to work hard to try to repair and fix uh, uh, the, the, whatever was going on in his marriage, and he realized that the fundamental flaw was that while they were each growing in their faith and serving in the church and loved Jesus, they had left Jesus out of their marriage. They went to church, they did church activities, they did Jesus stuff, they read books, they were being discipled, they shared Christ at work, but Jesus had not penetrated their marriage. See, there was this void from what their marriage was before they were following Jesus, where they were going to parties and doing all this other stuff. And Jesus had never filled the gap, filled the void left by that. And so they didn't know what their marriage was. And so once they realized that, they began to, to work on that and change that. And now they would look back and tell you their marriage is better than it has ever been. It is richer and sweeter now than ever before. <coughs> this is going to be a long sermon if this keeps happening. Let me do one big one. Maybe that'll fix it. Better. You see, Jesus is not just essential for spiritual things or internal things. Jesus is essential for your family. Like your marriage might be good, but with Jesus as essential at the center, it can be fantastic. Your kids and the way you raise them, the way you disciple them, the way you discipline, the way you love them, the way you interact with them should be centered around Jesus as an essential component. Because when it is, parenting moves from this hassle to a delight. Jesus transforms our homes. He transforms our parents and children. He transforms the culture of our homes. If you stop seeing Jesus just as something you focus on at church and start seeing him as this essential, central aspect of your home, a centerpiece of your home, it will revolutionize your family. Many of us come from homes and lives that are broken, and you live in difficult marriages, and you have rebellious kids, and you don't know how to reach them, and you don't know what to do. And while I do not have all of the answers, I know it can be difficult and it can be sad, but I know that without Jesus, there's no hope, only despair. But with him, you have comfort and peace and hope that things can change. No matter the state that your family is in, when you have Jesus as an essential part of it, it makes this huge difference. 
We believe making Jesus essential in your home is your only hope for your family to truly flourish. So we make Jesus essential in our hearts, in our homes, and in our lives. In our hearts, our homes, and our lives. If our hearts are internal, our homes are our family, then our life is everything else. It's where we work, it's where we play. I want to focus on work for a moment. Because I think too often what happens is we believe that work exists only to bring money in, bring a paycheck home, to provide for ourselves, our family. Uh, or, and if we get really spiritual, we believe our work exists so that we might share the gospel with our coworkers. And while both of those things are true and good, if you believe that that is the purpose of your work, it is because you have not made Jesus essential in your work. When God created the world, before sin entered the world, before the world was broken, when it was perfect, God put humanity to work. Work existed before sin. Work is good. Work is human. Work is fulfilling one of the first commands of God. <clears throat> when you work, you're not just earning a paycheck or being a light. When you are working, you are cultivating and subduing and taking dominion of the world as Jesus commanded. Lawyers are promoting justice in a world that perverts it. Doctors and nurses bringing healing to those who've been hurt by the broken curse of this world. Builders and creators and contractors are subduing the world, bringing order from chaos, and are being sub-creators as God is the creator and we are in his image. I could go on and on, but my point is this. When Jesus is essential in your life, you stop seeing your life in sections and in drawers, divided up. You stop seeing spiritual and secular and disconnecting it. You see every area and everything of your life in light of who Jesus is. When he's essential, when he is the lens, when he is the glasses by which you see everything else, when you see the world through the lens of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes how you think, how you act, how you parent, how you love, how you forgive, how you rebuke, how you serve, how you labor, how you play. When Jesus is essential, he changes everything. When Jesus is essential, you become the person God wants you to be. When Jesus is essential, you will see the whole world through new eyes. And dare I say, when Jesus is essential, you become more human. You see, when you stop segregating your life into spiritual and secular, everything becomes spiritual. And then, as everything becomes spiritual, it's no longer this ethereal, touchy-feely, like, in the cloud spiritual, instead what becomes what is spiritual becomes real, becomes tangible, becomes more real than anything else. So you've heard the phrase, you are so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. When we are so heavenly minded and we make Jesus so essential, we are of the most earthly good. When we make Jesus essential, we live to the fullest and thrive in this world and we make the world better. You see, you can have everything this world has to offer without Jesus. Like, that's true. Like, I don't want to miss words. You can have all the things I'm talking about. You can have all these gifts of God without Jesus. That's true. You can have a marriage and kids and cars and houses and jobs and money. You can have everything. But when you take the creations of God, which are meant to be gifts to you, and you use them, see them, use them without knowing the giver of the gift, without using it the way that it was meant to be, then everything that you have terminates on itself. Everything becomes an end in itself. And it's empty and but a dim reflection of what it could be in your life. 
when your marriage and your kids and your cars and your houses and your jobs and your money and your friends and your hobbies and food and everything else is received and viewed and used with Jesus as essential, it changes everything. It, it spirals up. It spirals up into greater enjoyment that every gift you receive spirals up to bring more joy, more fulfillment, because you know the giver of the gift. They are switch, sweeter and richer and actually fulfilling because you don't think that they are ends in themselves. Your, ki your kids cease to become just biological copies of you that you have to take care of. Your spouse ceases to become someone who exists to meet your needs. Your job ceases to be just a paycheck and your hobbies cease to be just a fun thing you do. And all of it becomes more real, more fulfilling, more full of joy, more full of worth and rich and glorious. When you make Jesus essential, you get what Jesus promised he was bringing when he said, I come to bring life and bring it abundantly. He didn't say, I come to get you guys the heck out of here. He said, I came to bring life and abundantly. I want this for me. I want this for you and I want it for the world. Our mission has to be much bigger than just seeing people saved. Seeing people saved is step one. That is intro. That is basic. That is, we got to do it. Our mission is to help people become fully mature followers of Jesus Christ, helping them make Jesus essential so that they can experience the true blessings of life in the kingdom of Christ. They can experience what true human flourishing looks like. They can take off their old glasses, put Jesus' glasses on, and see the world as they should see it. But the problem we face is a world that doesn't believe. And we face a problem of people who do believe but give Jesus 1.7 Sundays a month. Did you know that's the average church attendance, 1.7 Sundays a month in America? We, have, we are fighting against people who do not believe and people who want to give Jesus 1.7 Sundays a month. When Jesus is not essential, he quickly becomes expendable. A lot of people like Jesus. A lot of people, uh, Jesus makes them feel good. And they know when they need him, they can run to him. They keep him over here in the corner. They give him the one drawer at the bottom because they know when they need him. When there's an emergency. <clears throat> they can throw up a prayer. They can throw up a Hail Mary, a last-ditch effort, and beg God to come help them, and they expect him to be there. They don't want him in their everyday lives. But they certainly want him there when times get tough. But he's expendable until they need him. When Jesus is not essential, it is like eating bread without yeast. When Jesus is not essential... It is not this warm, fluffy, melting-in-your-mouth thing. It is this gross, flat, stale cracker. And that's what everything else in life. Whatever areas in your life that you try to have without Jesus, it's like bread without yeast. Life without Jesus may look like life, may be called life, but it is not life. It is just slow death. And so I envision a church. I envision a people and a transformed community that doesn't make Jesus a last resort, that doesn't only turn Jesus to, to Jesus in times of crisis, doesn't just give him 1.7 Sundays a month. Instead, I see a people who begin to live life to the fullest, who begin to see their lives transformed, who begin to taste a joy they never dreamed of obtaining. I see people's whole lives made new and full by making Jesus essential in every area, in their marriage, in their kids, in their job, in their play, everything. I do not think the world 
is going to be changed by gimmicks. I do not think the world and people's lives will be transformed by a small God with a small message who demands little of their life. Instead, I think the world is longing for something that is actually real. I think the world is longing for something that doesn't fade, doesn't get old, doesn't go out of style. I think the world wants something they can count on, something faithful, something dependable, something life-altering and life-giving. I think the world actually wants something that demands everything from them, something essential, and that it leaves them better for giving their whole lives wholly to it. And I think that something is Jesus. And I think He is more essential than yeast and bread or the air we breathe. And I think it's time we start treating him like it. And I think it's time we start showing the world what they are missing out on. And I hope that you will join our church in this mission to make Jesus essential here and everywhere within our reach. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we confess that we have been a people who have segregated our lives. We have been a people who have seen our lives in the spiritual and in the secular, and we have divided them. And we have given you the spiritual drawers, and we have taken away the secular ones. We have hold those on for ourselves. Jesus, would you make us a people who does not see our lives segregated off in this way, but see our whole life given to you, not as the mayor or governor of our life, but as the king who can command and demand everything of us. God, help us be a people and a church who shouts and shows the world what they are missing when they try to live life without Jesus. Help us to show the world that their marriages can be richer, (coughs) that their jobs can be more fulfilling, their kids can bring them joy, that everything can be better and sweeter for having it with Jesus. You see, Church, if we have Jesus and we need something else, in the end we'll get nothing. But if we have Jesus and need nothing else, in the end we get everything. Jesus doesn't just want us to have the spiritual things. He wants us to have the whole creation. He made it for us. So God, help us. Help us to be a people who makes Jesus essential in all of our lives. And help us to be a people who help others make Jesus essential in theirs too. And we pray all people say, stand and sing together. If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be up here and we'll have guys in the back.